Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Life is changing in Australia because the pub is shut. Sucked in, fellas. I actually find it gobsmacked. I will call it a personal nightmare. Tell the Prime Minister to go and get... It is changing all around the world. I accept your nomination. The authority is total. And I rejected that approach. It's all about acknowledging how far we've come. He's all tipping no iceberg. Like a really scary wooden puppet. He was drunk. That's not true. Not now, not ever. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hello again, I'm Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institution. I'm so glad you've joined us this week for the episode of Democracy Sausage because I'm delighted to welcome back the loquacious and perspicacious but never fallacious Sophia Gaston from the British Foreign Policy Group. But before I get to her, let me bend your ear ever so briefly. There's been a lot of action going on in Britain and in Europe in the past few weeks, much of it with real-world implications for Australia. First, there's the COP26 meeting in Glasgow, which continues as we speak, even though the leaders' part has largely played out. Australia has again distinguished itself as a 21st century country with a 20th century government. Net zero by 2050, but with no new policy settings. The word fantastic comes to mind, or perhaps maybe risible. Of course, most of the CO2 emitted by our leadership was not in its 2050 pledge or the triumphant speech given to an empty room in Glasgow, but in an ongoing shouting match between supposed allies as Scott Morrison and Emmanuel Macron exchanged frank character assessments after the coalition dumped the $88 billion French submarine contract in favour of nuclear ones from, well, somewhere else, UK or Britain. Anyway, you know the story. Macron, incensed at being deceived and hung out to dry by a close friend whilst he's in shadow of an election, and Morrison so eager to blame someone else he blurts out private SMS messages, or his office does, purporting to disprove Macron's charge, which, by the way, they did not. Amid all this, the Brits have been having their own trade spat with Paris, and Westminster has been in uproar over corruption claims, attempts to neuter the parliamentary standards watchdog, and much else besides. Dr Maria Teflaga is here, I'm glad to say, Director of the Australian Politics Studies Centre and, of course, lecturer in the ANU School of Politics and International Relations. Maria, welcome back. Hello, thank you. And, as I said, the aforementioned Sophia Gaston. 
She's also a semi-regular here, always glad to have her on Democracy Sausage. She's the director of the British Foreign Policy Group, and she's a research fellow at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Welcome back to you, Sophia. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure, as I say. Now, it's become fashionable among journalists to bag these big events like these COP meetings, depict interest groups as indulgent, pious, whatever it is. And I've seen a few pieces like that. I think a lot of a lot of it is, is is a kind of a cheap shot. But that said, I instantly knew what you meant with this brilliant tweet last week, Sophia. And I'll read it out. It said, the very specific vibe of COP26 is regional airport on Christmas Eve during a violent blizzard. Clusters of manic groups sporadically dashing through with urgent purpose and everyone else sitting on the floor waiting around, battling over the dwindling food supplies. I mean, it certainly made me laugh having uh, having been at uh, uh, you know COP meetings in the past, certainly the one in, in Copenhagen. There's an enormous number of people at these things. Uh, so that that depiction, you know, particularly worked with me. Can I get you to just sort of tell tell us what it was like there, Sophia, at um, at Glasgow? Well, it was you know a conference with many different moods all playing out at the same time. I mean, I think you know for a lot of people there was a lot of focus on the logistics around the conference, which were at times feeling a little bit shambolic. Uh, there was uh, huge queues accessing the building. There were enormous problems with securing accommodation. Rooms that would normally cost 60 or 70 pounds a night were being flogged for around a thousand pounds a night. There was difficulty accessing food sometimes in the building. People didn't feel they had enough places to sit and work. So I think a lot of those things do sort of color people's experiences. I think there was also a sense perhaps that it, it was a rather uneasy mix of activists, campaigners, journalists, but then with kind of big business, with with a rather, should we say, uneven record um, on the substance of climate change, as well as these uh, national pavilions, which is sort of, um, it's like a little bit like a sort of country fair with everybody putting out their baked goods to show, you know, enormous, <laughs> enormous amounts of money spent on these pavilions, you know, and you've got countries that are doing some some really good stuff there, but you've also got countries like Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and so on, um, given the opportunity to put their best foot forward. So I think it's, it's a strange mix there. And then, of course, you've got all the political delegations, and there's a lot of political theatre about this. You have, you know, a world leader and, and a pack of 20 or 30 people who run around manically with them and, and you know, photographers snapping on. So you have moments of high drama, a lot of sort of uh, waiting around, a, a, a few gripes that the logistics behind things. But I should say, you know, I think the good the good news is that behind closed doors uh, where the delegations were meeting to sort of hash out the substance of, of the timetable and, and the commitments that were to be made, I think as we're sort of coming into the second week of COP, there is a little bit of a quiet air of optimism. I do think that there is a sense that the first week did achieve some tangible uh, goals in terms of deforestation, methane. Um, there were pledges on clean tech, a bit more financing trickling through. So I think it is fair to say that uh, the UK government was rather trying to ratchet down expectations uh, coming into the conference. But 
I do think despite all the theatre and the drama of the first week behind it all, there has been some tangible gains. So we'll see. I mean, you know, obviously we're sort of, um, there is a bit of a feeling that some of the wind has gone out of the sails um, of the conference because people just really don't have the stamina <laughs> to keep it up for two weeks. But there are whispers that Boris Johnson may be uh, travelling up uh, to Glasgow again for the end of the week to try and end things on a high note. So the the real measure of success will, will be on those final days, whether or not we can sort of inch things uh, forward in any kind of meaningful way. And I guess he'd probably be thinking that he'll wait and see his office, his brains trust to be waiting to see what the positives are that they can capitalise on there. If it's ending in, in kind of despair on some key thing, then perhaps he might rethink it. Um, they like to they like to you know not be too committed to these things so they can uh, grab the positives if they're there maria i don't know if they, if if any of those sort of descriptions of you know uh, the the logistics and just the sheer number of people and the the sort of struggling to get things done whether that resonates with with any of these sort of academic conferences you've been to um but it sounds like there's been a fair bit of um a fair bit of kind of what you might call greenwashing oh, yes. going on, uh, the way Sophia is describing a number of governments that are there, but also some corporates that are there. You know, perhaps they, they, they're doing good things, and in many cases I'm sure that is the case, but there will probably be a degree of wanting to be cloaked in these, uh, in these new green credentials as well. Oh, yeah. It, actually, it reminds me of a, a famous um, political science conference that everyone got trapped in, I think it was in Iceland, uh, because that volcano uh, blew up. Yeah, <laughs> oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, so you yeah. sort of had a similar kind of situation where, you know, hotel rooms became very expensive. And, and as you kind of say, you know, people sort of huddled in airports, furtively looking at, at food and things like that. Companies are always, and, and governments for, for that matter, are always going to take the opportunity, I suppose, to to sell what they're doing as being better and greater than 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 what it is. I guess I'm overly cynical about these things and I guess one of the things I kind of wonder is why they why they bother to have like the little fair sort of spruiking you know like clean coal or whatever it is at these at these conferences when you, you're likely to have an audience that is the least likely to fall for that kind of stuff I guess you've 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 got to fake it till you make it I suppose <laughs> Yeah, that, that's, that's probably true. It, it, I'm, I'm completely, uh, as I say, at one with Sophia's description of, of you know, the, the, the place being sort of overwhelmed with people and, and the difficulties associated with that getting into the conference. Uh, as I think I've told listeners to this podcast before, I was at the, uh, the Copenhagen one in 2009 and on the first day, me and another journo left at about, I think we left at about 12.30, having been there since about 7 a.m., and we were just not convinced the line was moving forward to get in and it was so damn freezing that we were, you know, suffering frostbite or, you know, in danger of it, literally. And I couldn't tell whether every now and then you'd kind of inch forward, but I couldn't tell whether this was just sort of line compaction, you know, happening up, up, up. you know, you couldn't see the front of the queue. And as it happened, we we've, we finally bailed on it on that first day, we just couldn't get in. And we spoke to a couple of other journos, uh, other Australian journos that were, you know, in the queue with us the next day and they had stayed there for the whole day and had not got in at all for the whole day. You know, so it's these things are kind of enormous and, and you do get a lot of people 
who are on the sort of periphery of the decision-making process, people who are trying to influence it, people who are trying to report on it, and and uh, people who are pushing one particular version of what it is uh, over another, I guess. Uh, it's a big circus, and that's why there's been so much reporting about you know those logistics being overwhelmed, I guess, Sophia. Is there a sense that people want to encourage you know those companies and those governments, even when they might not be doing as much as they should be doing, but at the same time, you don't want to discourage them from taking those baby steps, for want of a better word. I mean, I noticed Johnson, Boris Johnson, for example, when he was speaking to those school kids before the COP meeting started, described Australia's decision, belated decision to commit to net zero by 2050 as heroic, which seemed to be possibly you know, one conservative prime minister congratulating another conservative prime minister. Perhaps there was a bit of that in it. But it also felt to me like he was trying to use it as, you know, evidence to get some momentum going, so to get people coming along and being prepared to take that next step. Do you think that was that's a, a correct uh, understanding of it? Yeah, look, I mean, I think you can be very cynical about these things and I think it's in, important to sort of cast a, a, a sort of hard-nosed look across these sorts of things. But I, I do think that there is a degree to which the performative can be become substantive, you know, and I, I think there certainly all these companies being up there, different countries having their pavilions, there is a degree of sort of peer pressure and, and I think sort of just moving the dial on what is considered sort of best practice to start, to start to become a bit more like the status quo. So I think it's not it's not entirely without merit. And, you know, I, I personally think it's rather a good thing to see a lot of huge corporates sort of scrambling to think about how they're going to present themselves on these sorts of things. Of course, proof is in the pudding and, and, and we want to see that come to tangible outcomes. But I do think that there is some value to this. And I think it's important because we are sort of getting past that first stage where you had a kind of consumer and, and early mover kind of stage of of those who are willing to go out on the on the front limb and and consumers themselves saying this is what we want and demand um all all of that we've sort of pretty much exhausted the gains that can be made through that now and we are getting to the much pointier end which is that you know governments and businesses are having to kind of completely reshape their model of of productivity output supply chains and so on and we are getting into the really difficult stuff the heavy lifting which is around regulation and how you're going to manage that transition particularly as as it's it's rightly i think expected that it will bear some rather asymmetrical impacts on on different parts of population so you know we are getting to the point where the domestic political situation is going to become incredibly central and the way in which that impacts uh, what leaders feel they can bring to the world stage is, is going to be, I think, one of the most central tensions in, in kind of global governance o- over the next decade. And I think on the question of Australia, I mean, I'm I'm not sure that Australians are aware that often a lot of the reporting about Australia on climate change, you know, and Australia's involvement in COP can be you know, very much lumping Australia in with other kind of 
emitters like India and China and so on is a bit of a sort of bête noire on these sorts of things, particularly seen, I think, on two two measures as sort of dragging its feet. And, and one is the coal transition and the other is just these questions of ambitions and targets. Um, it's wonderful that Australia has finally kind of risen to the challenge with a with a binding pledge, but mm. uh, you know, I think most countries have been got- well. It, was, it hasn't even been legislated. Yes, it, to disappoint you. Sophia. Yes, well, the, yeah. the, at least the ambition there for a, for a binding pledge has has emerged. But you know, the reality is that most other countries are are having to redouble their efforts, are accelerating their timeframes. So Australia is sort of just coming to sit at the table when many others, you know, are already going much further. And I think. These questions of how we report into the UN and how frequently that will be and the way in which that can hold countries to account to accelerate their timetables. I think these are going to be the really crucial questions of this week. And, you know, I think Australia at the conference, I have to say, you know, was doing some uh, magnificent work on soft power, not least of all, Australia did rather well uh, securing a coffee machine and was doling out uh, Australian quality brews to all the weary conference goers. But, but I do think it's important to think about climate action <laughs> now as part of the broader offer on soft power. And, you know, in it, I have to say it is quite striking because in, in Westminster, we've been through that huge shift towards seeing climate action not just as a sort of necessity or responsibility, but as a source of competitive advantage. So that transition, that economic transition and being a leader in that and thinking about how we can build a new economic model around it, what that means for science, technology, innovation, R&D and so on. You know, these are things that are seen as absolutely integral, not just to national resilience, but also prosperity. And I think Australia's still got a, a way to go on that. Still got a way to go. Yeah, absolutely got a long way to go because we're at a much more sort of primitive stage of that debate. At the moment, you could say that to use your, your frame of, uh, you know, competitive advantage, our political system has used climate change for political advantage for the last two decades, certainly for the last dozen years or so, but not in a constructive way, but as a way of dividing and conquering. And so this is what sort of galls me about the way some reporting has been done about Australia's announcement of this net zero by 2050 target with no legislation and no change of policy is that it's completely hollow. I mean, the, the, the Prime Minister actually says we don't need to legislate, we don't need to change any policy settings because we were already doing it, which makes one wonder what the hell has been all this argument about for so long about why we couldn't do it, why it was going to destroy the economy or whatever. So we're at this early stage of one side of politics having taken a political dividend from running down from shit canning basically the whole notion of climate change for a long time it's now had to go through the awkward dismount to some extent from that position but it's not prepared because of the nats you know the nationals it's not prepared to to do any of the kind of internal architecture that is necessary to bring about that change that presumably will come possibly from a change of government but even without a change of government some of these things will have to change. But at the moment, for political reasons, this this policy is completely trapped in the aspect of, of uh, you know, basically sort of 2009. Well, not even just political reasons. I mean, uh, you know, I think I think Barnaby Joyce succinctly summed up the, the, the core issue when he said, 
that Australia's three largest exports were iron, ore, coal and gas. And and I think that's the reality is that we, we haven't really had that conversation, right? You know, like, Sophia, you mentioned that, you know, in Westminster, it's the, the whole frame of the conversation is structured around competitive advantage. Well, we're only just starting to have the, the very beginnings of a conversation like that, which in one, in one sense is understandable because of, uh, you know, the nature of our exports, but in another kind of mad given um, how vulnerable we are to climate change and how much potential we have to, to transition to a green economy because of the amount of sunshine and wind and, and thermal, geothermal, hot rocks and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's, I think we've got a long way to go. Yeah, we definitely do. Look, what we might do is just take a quick break there and then I might get you to respond, Sophia. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week, we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive, and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, did you want to pick up what Maria was saying there, Sophia? Yeah, look, I mean, I think there is a little bit of frustration looking on for the UK. I mean, the way in which we would look at Australia, we'd be thinking, well, look, you've got these enormous natural attributes. And I think, as you as you rightly point out, Australia's very much been focused, and I think it's, it's sort of political conversation has been focused for a long time on, on the question of the resources that it has, uh, you know, which can be exported, which can be dug out of the ground and, and, and sent around the world. You know, I think there's also a conversation to be had about, you know, resources that Australia has that puts it in a really good position in terms of the climate transition. So, you know, as you note, wind, solar, and so on. And I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't think anyone will be surprised to say, uh, to hear me say that uh, solar power is not something we necessarily think we can be a world leader on in Britain, although we we are, of course, trying to play a role in the supply chain around that. You know, we've we've been doing an enormous amount of work here in the UK on how do you kind of build up our wind capabilities, you know, our hydropower and so on, other kind of innovative types of renewable technologies. I mean, I think the uh, the one point I would sort of bring into the mix here is I think the global energy crisis that has been playing out over the last couple of months, you know, has, has put in sharp relief the very uneven 
nature of this global transition, right, on on renewables and clean energy. So the the reality is that a lot of countries have actually been going backwards over over the past couple of months, you know, as emergency measures, reshoring up fossil fuels into their energy supply chains, just because we simply do not have the infrastructure yet to be fully reliant on uh, renewable technologies as they currently stand. And I think, you know, there there is something a little bit precarious about this moment because obviously there is a political argument that could emerge saying, well, this is exactly why we can't be kind of going headfirst into this. We need to, you know, have a more measured transition. I think the the argument that we're sort of trying to advance in Westminster is, is actually it's the opposite. This shows that we need to really get serious about redoubling our efforts because, you know, what what's happened is we've essentially got to a point where the ambition is not reaching the and meeting the realities of supply and and we don't have the resilience in our um energy supply chains at the moment and so are you talking about sorry to interrupt you there sophia but are you talking about uh things like firming firming power for example that so that there is uh, a backup point for when as has been such a sort of a refrain in australian politics for, for when the wind don't blow and the sun don't shine and there's too much inter- if you've got too too heavy a reliance on intermittent power supply like that and you don't have enough firming power from fossil fuels this has been the argument in australia then you end up with system unreliability yeah so i i think that there's a very delicate moment in the national conversation in britain but also in europe and and the united states at the moment where the energy supply chains have been deeply disrupted over recent months just to make sure that we don't fall into that narrative but rather saying okay this means that we need to be much more serious about building resilience into um it's not an either or it's not that fossil fuels were the only point of resilient energy it's that we need to think about the full mix and we need to give it its our full support to make sure that we can get there and i would say that what's going to be absolutely central to this are questions about nuclear power and energy and uh, you know i think it's very likely that those conversations are going to become increasingly prominent. It's it's actually a source of some dispute. Not really so it's not doesn't have a huge amount of political power in, in Westminster, the question about nuclear. We are going ahead. Actually, we've been stripping out Chinese involvement in, in the building of our nuclear power plants and are seeking new financing options. But we are going ahead with building new reactors. France, of course, has been using nuclear energy uh, as a very significant part of its energy mix for a long time. Countries like Germany are are in a more difficult position. And I think the question about the role that nuclear plays as that kind of foundational underpinning of energy supplied during the transition is going to be one of the most important kind of geopolitical conversations, I think, uh, over the coming years. It's a really fascinating dynamic that because Nuclear has been such a, a you know a hot button issue uh, for the the left around the world, particularly in Australia. It's just been utterly um, proscribed. You know, not even not even something that mainstream politicians could talk about. Every now and then, you know, one might stick their head up on it, but essentially, it's been you know across the the broad left uh, absolutely anathema. And yet, it was quite fascinating, Maria, to see that when this submarine deal happened you know when it collapsed and uh, and Morrison stood there with the, the the monitors you know with Biden and Johnson uh, by him when he announced this new AUKUS arrangement and that you know part of which is that we're supposedly getting nuclear powered 
submarines. It was I was quite fascinated having watched this this nuclear debate uh, over a long period of time, many decades, to see that there was really no significant. I mean, the Greens are opposed to it, but there was really no sort of significant upwelling of anxiety about this. Australia becomes, if it happens, the first nation, as I understand it, to have a nuclear-powered naval assets without a domestic nuclear industry. I wonder whether you think, Maria, there's any possibility that that the left uh, in, 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 in the environmental sphere will start to look at things like nuclear energy in a different way from the way it's been cast in the past. I, I doubt that, mostly because I think the, the sort of typical arguments put forward by, I guess, the left on this subject uh, in the context of climate change is that it takes so much energy to build these clear power plants that the sort of net gain is is not very good. It's not a good equation. I think it was really kind of interesting the Nationals did uh, raise the spectre of nuclear power and that Morrison uh, vetoed that pretty much immediately, which was interesting given the kind of, uh, I guess, political kind of game that they were, they were playing as coalition partners with striking a deal, which we still haven't seen any detail of, uh, I'll add. And I guess one of the things that sort of struck me about what you said, Sophia, was you were talking about um, conversations around not having necessarily the capacity to kind of deliver. And in Australia, it might interest you to know that we have a sort of similar problem, but for different reasons, which is that we've experienced instability in our energy supply, not because of too much uh, green energy as such, but because we kind of lack the legal framework um, and the policy framework to sort of send the correct signals to to, uh, energy markets here. And so we have had this problem with not being able to necessarily manage uh, our energy um, supply. And that is actually the main reason why Malcolm Turnbull lost his job, because he couldn't get his national energy guarantee through. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct to sort of say that you know, these are the these are going to be the pointy questions for you know, like not only the next decade, but probably the next three, as we um, kind of radically transform not only our economy, but also essentially how we think about what obligations the state has to its citizens. And we sort of see that with these kind of legal actions from, you know, the children of such and such state as they sort of take on their governments or like there was a case in the Netherlands where people are kind of demanding that the state actually kind of offer them the protection that the state is supposed to in a kind of like Hobbesian sense of, you know, order and security. So, yeah, very interesting times. That's a very long-winded answer to what is a pretty simple question. Sorry, Mark. No, that's fine. Look, um, what I might uh, do uh, at this stage, Sophia, is I just wanted to touch on a couple of other things uh, in the in the time we've got left, particularly the Merkel-Macron moment uh, that we uh, saw. I'm not entirely sure what the ceremony was, but it was. It seemed to be recognising Angela Merkel's departure, and Macron seems to be the, um, you know, the emerging senior figure in in continental Europe. What did you make of it? Well, I think you know. There's obviously genuine admiration, affection and respect between Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron. I think, you know, some of the emotions we saw on display there, I think, you know, they, they're about their friendship together and and they they have, of course, been working very closely together for, for quite a long time. But I also think there's there's a degree of, of their own sort of individual stories in play. I think Angela Merkel is obviously rather emotional at the prospect of uh, stepping down after such a long period. And I think, you know, Macron, as you say, is 
you know, very much there is a sense that he is going to be the sort of heir anointed as as kind of not uh, the European Union's de facto leader, but certainly he will become a driving force uh, within its future direction. And I think, you know, both of them feel a little bit overwhelmed about the scale of the challenge ahead. And I think, you know, Macron, something that is going to be incredibly interesting is that, of course, you know, in Angela Merkel's wake, uh, the German government is actually still in the process of of being formed. We don't have a clear sort of heir apparent. I mean, uh, she actually quite extraordinarily last week was um, taking Olaf Schulz, the um, uh, her sort of opposite number and on the centre left party, uh, who looks as though almost certainly he w- he will become the next chancellor with a coalition government that we don't quite know what it looks like yet. But she was taking him around, sitting in on her. Uh, final meetings, which which was very unusual um, and an act of, of quite significant magnanimity and I think also kind of trying to smooth the transition, keep stability in the country during this this time. You know, I think the, the question about the nature of the German government and how Schultz will govern it is quite central to the dynamic as well about how Macron will be able to effectively use his power. You've got this sort of triumvirate. I would, I would note, of course, there are other very powerful power bases and, and sort of emerging forms of minilateralism within the EU that we should note. Certainly the uh, Brussels-France-Germany relationship is is one that is very important, and you know, with Ursula von der Leyen, she as, as the president of the European Commission, she of course is is German herself. She had served in Angela Merkel's uh, cabinet, but she uh, actually has sort of rather complicated relationships with with a number of uh, German politicians. She's not especially well integrated into the domestic scene. And there has been a sort of feeling, particularly because France holds a number of the other key posts, that she might be favourable to, to a Macron-led agenda. So I think all of these sorts of things are swirling around these questions about the future. I think Macron has had a few setbacks in advancing his agenda recently. So there's probably a little bit of trepidation of, of what lies ahead. But um, certainly, I think, you know, when we should have a new German government in place by the end of the year. And uh, then, of course, Macron himself goes into a, a what is looking like a rather fiercely contested presidential election in the spring. So I think I think there's going to be a lot of flux. And I think what Merkel and Macron are trying to do is just give a little bit of continuity during that time and trying to make sure that Merkel's departure does not create a sort of power vacuum or a a lack of momentum, particularly because I think there are broader issues at play, not least of all the pandemic over winter, that are going to create some jitters. So that there is the potential for a lack of kind of grip and drift um, and, and so I think both of them, you know, they, they didn't <laughs> agree on everything during their time together, but I think they rather agree on, on the approach now that Merkel's stepping back. Yeah, look, I think that's a really excellent summation of, of the situation. It's, it's really quite fascinating to watch. I must say, when I saw that, that ceremony and, the, and the, the way they hugged and, and patted each other on the back, the, you know, the, the great human warmth of it, I was very much struck by the contrast between that and, of course, we have a very Australian, you know, uh, eye on this and, uh, you know, it, it came out pretty much at the same time as as we were see, seeing this 
in you know extraordinary spat between Macron and and Morrison. You know, so the contrast was rather large. But of course, uh, France is uh, having its own tensions with the UK. We know that Macron was deeply upset at the US's role in scotching the submarine deal for you know in, to replace it with his AUKUS thing as well. So they felt like, from his point of view, from the Frenchman's point of view, there was a there was a kind of a utility there in stressing. European unity. There's also a, a use for him in terms of stressing European unity in his tent, trade tensions with with Britain, and of course, as you say, uh, it, it it elevates him status-wise in a very difficult domestic political situation that you know he's facing uh, in the first quarter of of next year. Also, for Merkel, I suppose you'd say it's in a way peak Merkel. It's uh, She's become the great unifying figure of Europe, uh, a great unifying figure within Germany uh, over a long period of time. She's in a sense kind of been not confined by the by the by the diktat of or the or the doctrine of the party from which she comes. So it was it, it really struck me as being a very sort of I mean it was useful but it was also a very pan-European, pan-continental sort of moment was all the more stark for the contrast with some of the things happening outside. Yeah, I mean, I think there's absolutely a a kernel of truth in that. And I mean, I think it's always important to remember, you know, and something that we have um, become very accustomed to in Westminster is, is, you know, there's there's often quite a significant gap uh, between the, you know, political theatre that we see playing out at the top level and the conversations that are going on behind the scenes. And, you know, even at times when the Brexit negotiations felt like they were really at the pointy end, uh, there was still a lot of constructive uh, dialogue going on behind closed doors. I think what has been rather striking in the Anglo-Franco relationship, which you know, I think <laughs> let's be honest. The the there has always been a degree of friendly competition between Britain and France, and uh, that's sort of a bit of a national sport on on both sides. Um, although I would dare say that the the British media is is rather more obsessed with the French media than uh, with French politics than the other way round. But I, you know, I think it's impossible to separate the tone of these conversations um, that are playing out between Britain and France, you know, from the fact that Macron is involved in a, you know, pretty tough domestic political campaign. He uh, fought the last election uh, to some degree from the left and is fighting the new, this next election from the right. He has some very strong, um, very disruptive candidates who are sort of pushing for a much kind of stronger sense of of French nationalism. So I think while he doesn't want to sort of pand to those things, he needs to show that he is defending France's sovereignty and and its interests. And he's obviously got seen the AUKUS deal not just as something that um, is is kind of a big loss for for France potentially, you know, financially, but also that there, I think he feels that there is a sort of geopolitical wound because of that that's been afflicted because of that, and and so he's quite keen not to let that sense of victimhood settle around it, and so has been fighting on the offensive. I mean, I think in the longer term, obviously things are in quite a challenging situation at the moment between 
Britain and the European Union uh, over the Northern Ireland Protocol. There is uh, talk this week that uh, Britain is preparing to uh, trigger Article 16, which essentially it, it was the sort of, well, we don't like to use the term backstop, but was a sort of a kind of safeguard that was put in that could be triggered on either side uh, that would essentially suspend the protocol if if there was a sense of kind of national or, or collective interest being undermined. I mean, I think, you know, we've also seen Britain in the last couple of days trying to put on, a, you know, ratchet up the threats as well, saying that we would potentially withdraw from some of the key kind of scientific agencies that we've remained in. I Look, I, I think there is a sense this could get worse before it gets better, but I don't think it's in anybody's interest for this to kind of go over the edge in the short term, uh, not least of all because, you know, the mood here is is a little bit jumpy. We are now very much heading into winter. It's been a cold start to this, uh, the autumn and, you know, that everybody's looking ahead, not just in Britain, but right across the continent, you know, wondering how COVID's going to play out uh, in, in this setting. There have been obviously quite significant supply chain disruptions, uh, you know, and I think I think very much domestically politicians are thinking, how can we keep things smooth up until Christmas um, and, and minera- minimize the sense of sort of chaos? Because I think citizens are sort of still dealing with the terror that somehow we're going to be locked down again and so on, and that there'll be bare shelves at Christmas. This is something that I think is, is you know, politicians in Westminster are aware of, but but also in other European capitals. So, look, I, I, I think it will probably uh, escalate a little bit further, but um, I, th- I think there's such a huge uh, imperative on all sides to get this dialed down. But as ever, you know, the reality is that both sides need to be able to claim a victory here. And so it's actually about the orchestration of the theatre in terms of how can you have both sides moving at the same time. So so that's what's being hammered out at the moment. But uh, yes, it, it, it does feel as though things are in a pretty difficult position. And, and coming back to what I was saying earlier about sort of, you know, you can have this kind of song and dance on the world stage and then behind the scenes constructive conversations. What is unusual about the current situation is that the situation between the relationship between Britain and France behind the scenes is is also in in a pretty tough place. And and that hasn't always been true before. Yes, it's a it's a fascinating time. There's so much more we could talk about. I haven't even really scratched the sides on uh, talking about Johnson's difficulties in Westminster and uh, what he's facing, and and how Keir Starmer, the uh, the Labor leader, Sir Keir Starmer, is uh, is performing. Uh, I was hoping to get to that, but we're right out of time. It's been absolutely great listening to you, Sophia Gaston, about all of, all of these things. Really fascinating, and we really look forward to next time we can talk again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Maria, for your uh, contribution. As always, see you again next week. Thanks very much. See you later, guys. That's it for Democracy Sausage. Uh, As I say, talk to you again next week. Bye for now. 